Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. Everybody and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host Justin McElroy, and I'm Sydney McElroy. Hey, hey! It's been calm. Uh, uh, the snow's melted. In case you're looking for a snow update, the snow melted. I'm sure that everybody was waiting to get their weather update we from our trapped, weekly podcast. Trapped with our rotten children for four out of five days last Aww. week. If you can believe, I love, I love those days. Someday you will look back um, on those days. Okay, fondly. you. Okay, is this a character you're playing? No, because the it's Sydney true. I know by day four was like, um, I'm not doing great. I need. <laughs> well, I the thing is like this is the part they always tell you. Other older parents, like by older, I don't mean older in age. I mean like they have older kids. They've already been through this period of parenting. They will always tell you like, oh, you'll miss these days. Someday they won't want to be around you. Someday they'll be talking to their. I don't know, whatever teenagers do. Someday they'll AI, be doing that. They talk to chat, chat GPT. Right. They talk to AI all day and they don't hang, they go hang out with their Cylon friends instead of you. <laughs> um, and and then you feel bad because then you're like, oh man, why didn't I appreciate it more? Mm. I thought I was appreciating it, but maybe I wasn't appreciating it enough. But what they don't tell you is that your kids, even when they're little, they get sick of you too. Mm-hmm. And they also get sick of being in the same place as you for a while. Yes. So like even at our mm-hmm. kids' age, after a while, they didn't want to be here. Yeah. And so then I don't know how to be like, I'm appreciating you. Hey, I'm trying <laughs> to enjoy your finest days. I'm enjoying your youth. Why are you so upset? And they're like, we want to leave the house. Stop making your youth so crappy. I'm trying to savor it. Stop ruining your youth. But we're here now. And we're ready to talk with you about a new medical uh, mystery, malady. Well, uh, it's not, medical. I wouldn't say it's a mystery. I don't, know a what malady. The epi- I don't know what the episode's about, so okay. I'm just giving the most general sort of like, you know, a sawbones. We, we got a we got a, an email from Annie, thank you, Annie, titled uh, Fertile Fat and 40. <laughs> okay. Was the title of this email, which if you are in the medical world, if you're in a healthcare field, you may, especially as a physician, you may have heard that I've in school. Heard. Okay. Okay. So, like, I and I assume outside of the medical world, I don't know why you would have heard that collection of uh, alliterative words. This immediately caught my attention because I thought, one, oh, we've never done an episode about gallstones. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay. And I knew that that was the connection. And two, it, I had this thought, and I'm going to explain all this. Don't worry. Okay. This mnemonic device that this listener had put in the title of the email is one that, and by the way, 
the, our listener did not come up with this. This is taught in medical schools. Okay. And maybe other healthcare fields, maybe in nursing schools. I don't know. But I was taught this. So this is something that, that I don't know who first said it, but it well predates any of us. Um, I started to wonder, because I think it's important to do so, just because I was told something, especially something kind of like that, that people think is clever and off the cuff and not necessarily like a, like here's a fact that you're learning about something, but here's this little like useful device to remember things. I think sometimes it's good to stop and go, is that true? Is that right? Do we know that's true? And so that's what I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about gallstones. A lot of people have them. A lot of people end up having their gallbladder removed. I want to talk about that. Like the frog. Like the frog. We were wondering about the frog getting boiled. That was true. Yes. That's Would not you like really to share that? Device, but you know, there's a thing about like how if you put a frog into water and then you slowly increase the temperature, you boil the frog, it won't jump out because it doesn't notice. It's, it's sort of a metaphor for like, uh, I don't know, a slippery slope is maybe the best, like, you know. The, you- it's often used in like talking about like people who were brainwashed or fell into sort of like a cult accidentally right. like that if you if you pour hot water on somebody they know that it's hot water but if you put them in room temperature water and slowly increase it they won't notice short version is if the water gets too hot the frog will jump out it is yeah nonsense. it's not true the frog it's will not stay not in there true. and get boiled i heard yeah. someone recently say that used i think it was on the trust someone used like lobster getting boiled and it's like well like a lobster may or may not notice <laughs> But, but a lobster think, can't jump out. Yeah, a lobster's not going to jump out. So you're just kind of reading into the lobster. I don't know at that no, point. No, and in a lot of those cases, in my experience, I've never done it myself, but I've seen people boil lobster and they put a lid on, mm. which that's not fair. They don't that's even have, even if they can jump, we'll never anyway. know. Okay, so why why would this email be titled Fertile Fat and 40? Because when it came to gallstones, and I'm going to explain what those are if, if you don't know, if you're not familiar, if you've heard of it, but you're like, I don't really know what they are. Um when it came to learning about gallstones or cholelithiasis is the is the term we use. That's the medical terminology. Lithiasis, litho, litho referencing stones. So you'll hear that litho, that in like the removal of kidney stones, like lithotripsy, you hear stone. Okay. Uh, otolithiasis is when you have, or, or, or otoliths are the little crystals in your inner ear that help you know your position in space. Lith, that we're referencing stones. So anyway, stones in your gallbladder. Um, we were taught in medical school that there was a certain type of patient that was at highest risk for developing gallstones. And so a good way to remember it, and the, the purpose of this mnemonic is so if a person walks in with stomach pain, with abdominal pain, and they meet these criteria, then you should put gallstones high on your list of differential diagnoses. Okay, that's the purpose of this, okay. purportedly. Uh, but what they taught us is that uh, white cis women in their 40s who have had children and were overweight mm-hmm. are at highest risk for developing gallstones. Okay. And so the way that we were supposed to remember that was female, fair, fertile, fat, 40. Mm. That collection of Fs to help us remember who gets gallstones. I think you're forgetting one. Friend. Hmm. That makes you think, doesn't it? I guess people no. aren't just their diagnosis there, Dr. McElroy. Well, I, I mean, you're making my point. People aren't their diagnosis. And is this French. even accurate? French. French. Well, you know the other one that I was taught in school? What? Flatulent. Oh, okay. Well. Because a symptom could be gassiness. We can all come up with that <laughs> words. So, um, 
Anyway, I want you to think about that mnemonic and sort of like when I said those words, if you are the kind of person who can visualize things, if you're not, as we've recently learned, um, some people cannot visualize, some people cannot see images in their brain. If you can, uh, then you may have pictured the patient walking in, holding their stomach, who fits all this criteria, who you're going to say like, ah, I learned in medical school, you must have gallbladder disease. I know. Um, is that true? Is it a helpful mnemonic? What does that do to your diagnostic process? What do you assume about somebody when they walk in saying, I have abdominal pain, if you know this mnemonic? Mm. Um, and what? how might that interfere with the care that they're going to receive? I think is a really useful thing to ask. Um, first of all, Justin, do you know anything about the gallbladder? You're really thinking. You're like really digging into your, do you know where it is? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Where or honey, this, I'm just realizing this little mm -hmm. guy pie has been in my body trucking mm -hmm. along for 43 odd years. And I have no idea where it is. I don't know if I have one. And you do. I don't know what it's doing. Do you know where your liver is? Okay. Well, you're, you're just referencing your entire abdomen. Okay. If you divide your abdomen into quadrants, four <laughs> places, yeah. Okay. The right upper. There's your liver. Okay. Your gallbladder is nestled snugly right sort of under it, up against it. Yep. We're just big bags of organs. We are just big bags of organs. So that's where, so your gallbladder is a little sack there and it holds bile. And it's this little guy who's just like, he's squished right up against the liver. He just hangs out right there with the liver. I'm embarrassed. I feel like one of those people when they get up on a, they tell them to get up on a map and find Algeria. And I'm like, okay. It's maybe, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about the gallbladder or gallbladder. That's okay. A lot of people don't, other than that, I think most people know this. Can you live without your gallbladder? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think that it's one of the organs we know we can live without. I think that's about all most people know about it. Um, so anyway, so it's a tiny organ that uh, holds bile, which is a liquid that helps you digest food. Okay. Okay. So what the way that it fits, and this is kind of important to know, like, if something goes wrong, why do you have the symptoms you have? So it's a little bag, and it's got a little tube called a duct off the end of it. And that duct connects into a bigger duct, a bigger pipe. So it's it's sort of like, I mean, this is all plumbing. There's the big pipe that comes out of the liver, which it has its own little divisions, but we won't get into that. There's a big pipe that comes down out of the liver and on its way down into the small intestine because that's where it connects with the duodenum. And then on its way down, the gallbladder duct connects into it. It feeds into the big pipe okay. of the common bile duct. Okay, got okay? it. Yes. And the pancreatic duct is also going to feed further downstream into this big duct. Okay. And the whole thing is going to feed into the duodenum through the ampulla of Vader. Okay. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Yeah. That's what it's called. The ampulla of Vader? Yeah. Okay. V-A-T-E-R, though. Uh, okay. So not Darth. No, I know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's how the bile from the gallbladder is going to get down into your intestines and help you digest food. Okay. Gotcha? Does that it's make like sense? A, it's just like a little extra. Just like a little, it just squirts it in. It squirts it in. Okay, got it. It literally does eject, like it has an ejection fraction just like your heart does, meaning that like it squeezes and ejects it, squirts it. Okay. It also just sort of oozes, but like it squirts. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Gallstones are little masses, little stones, little free-floating things that form inside the gallbladder. Okay. They can be made up of different things. The most common thing they're made up of is cholesterol. So if there is uh, a excess cholesterol within this bile fluid that is being created in your liver and that your gallbladder is storing, if there's excess bile in there, then you will precipitate out these stones. Like if you have a lot of solids within a liquid, they start mm-hmm. to like they start to connect and and form solid masses and okay. float up out of it. Okay. And that 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 that's happens a in a lot of yes, and that forms a gallstone. Now they are not always made of cholesterol. That's the most common. Um, they can be made of like if you if you have some condition that causes you to break down red blood cells in an abnormal fashion, they can be made of like the pigments from the broken down blood cells. So you can have well, bile pigments is what we call them. So you can have those in there. There are calcium ones and specific, and, and these get more specific to like you have some other condition that is causing you to have more of these things, right? And then they precipitate out in your gallbladder. So you have these stones, about 10 to 15% of people have these stones. And that varies by age and ethnicity. But generally speaking, 10 to 15% of people have gallstones. Um, only 15 to 25% of those people who have gallstones are actually are ever going to have symptoms from them. Hmm. So just having gallstones doesn't necessarily mean So you may just be rocking around with gallstones have no clue. No exactly. Problem. And actually the way that a really interesting way that you find this out in medical school is sometimes when you're on your surgical rotation sometimes they have an ultrasound and they show you how we ultrasound the gallbladder to look for stones. Which that's a sneak peek. How do we figure out if you have stones in your gallbladder? Most commonly, we ultrasound you. Like, just like an ultrasound, they take the little wand, they put some jelly on it, and they, if you're pregnant, they rub it around on your belly and look for the baby. They can rub it around on the part of your abdomen where your gallbladder is and look at your gallbladder. And if there are stones in there. You say that's called a sneak peek? You're getting a sneak peek at the gallbladder? Well, I'm giving you a sneak peek as to how we diagnose it. That was supposed to be later, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. It'll be our little secret. So we do an ultrasound. Sometimes on your surgery rotation, they stick an ultrasound probe on one of the medical students to show you how we do this. And you find out that the medical student had gallstones. (laughs) This (laughs) was not me. This was not me, but one of my one of my fellow students uh, was diagnosed with gallstones oh, on their funny. rotation. Now they had never had symptoms; they had no idea. So it was what oh, we would call that an irritating, right? Yeah. And now they just know. So yeah. it's what we would call an incidental finding. Yeah. Incidentally, you just incidentally, just so you know, you which is which is useful in the sense that if if this person ever develops gall like the types of symptoms that I'm going to tell you if, that are related to gallstones, mm-hmm. then they already know they have gallstones and they may be more likely to go and say, hey, uh, medical provider, I already know I have this and now I'm having these symptoms that fits that. So Save you some time. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, like I said, it's extremely prevalent um, and uh, there are a lot of people over uh, 6.3 million females and 14.2 million males in the United States between the ages of 20 and 74 have gallstones. Okay. Uh, prevalence increases with age, by the way. So, like, if you get to over 60, a quarter of women have. Oh, man. Gallstones. Yeah. So, and and like I said, they can be made of different things. And so, they're specific, and you may have some underlying, you know, condition 
aside from gallstones that makes you, like I said, break down red blood cells differently. And actually, that will also change the uh, color of the gallstones. Not that it would matter to you. If you have gallstones, I don't think you really care what color they are. No. But like they'd be darker and black if you are if they're made of more bile pigment. Um, but anyway, so you may know because of another condition that you're seeing a doctor for that you're at higher risk for gallstones of these other types. Okay. High cholesterol is a risk factor for the majority of us because okay. that's a more common condition, right? Right. Um, so like I said, it is critical that you remember that most gallstones are not symptomatic. Most yes. people who have them don't even know they have them because they've never had a problem from them. However, sometimes those stones, because they're rolling around in this sack, can work their way down into the duct, the opening, ooh, the ooh, little tube. Oh, we hate that. That and, already sounds uncomfortable. Right. And they can block that flow. That's when you start to have symptoms. Because you're not getting... Well, one, the bile isn't getting through, but also as it squeezes, it's squeezing a stone. Okay. I I guess I'm confused. Can you help me? I, I, I'm sure you've explained it, but I'm trying to... Why do you need the bile? It helps you break down food. Got it. Okay, yeah. good. So you're basically, if I had to guess, and I don't know, do you, like, you're not digesting as well, right? Well, that is part of it, but the more the more acute problem, the, the bigger the is the backup of the bile. Right, right. It, that and this like squeezing action and backup of bile is going to is going to lead to inflammation within the gallbladder over time. Yeah. And the other thing is that it just hurts when you have those stones blocking the duct and the and it's trying to squeeze it out and it can't around the stone. So you start to get like what we call um biliary biliary colic is the term we use for it because it's colicky, meaning it comes and goes. It's like this achy, crampy pain right in that area, the right upper quadrant of your abdomen. It's usually after you eat because that's when there's food in there. It's triggering the release of these digestive enzymes and everything. So it's triggering the release of bile. That's when your gallbladder is trying to do its thing. So that's when you get the symptoms. You eat something. Oh, I'm getting this weird, crampy pain in this area. And you might feel like gassy and bloated and all of that along with it. Some nausea is very common, maybe even some vomiting. Um, and the pain is usually what people – that the pain is is what I hear first. The pain and then they name all these other symptoms, but the pain is what brings people in. Can I um, – would you allow me a brief diversion? Mm -hmm. I think the human body is so wild. Do you think about the fact that <laughs> like whatever forces you think got us to this point, it doesn't really matter to me, but those forces, they were like, well, we shouldn't have any of this stuff in the body. It feels bad and it's gross and bile's just yucky. Do we all agree that we don't want that? Like, yeah, let's get it out. And then somebody's like, well, some of it would be good sometimes to help break down food, but we don't need a lot of it. And they're like, well, I know, but it's kind of embarrassing that we need it. I'm like, well, what if we hit it? We'll hide it under the liver. So that way nobody will notice. And you'll just have this little bit in in you, just this reserve valve of yuckiness that will hide from you under the liver. So you don't really have to worry about it. That's wild. It's wild that it worked well, out that way. <laughs> it's really important, like when it comes to a lot of the visceral organs, it, it's really important that the stuff that's in them is only in them or flows through the um, appropriate outflow tract. Because there are things within various organs in your body that, like, would be very damaging or harmful were they to just, like, build up in uncontrolled amounts or spread to other places, right? Like, I mean, we have acid in our stomach. Like, I, yeah, I you love, know what I mean? So, like, it's 
the compartmentalization of these different materials <laughs> is crucial to our design. Yeah, I mean, I love seeing myself as just a big science fair volcano. If you shook me the right way, I would just pop. That's great. I yeah. love that. That's a great image for me. Um, let me tell you real quick. So I told you what symptoms you might have. And, and especially the pain is the main one. The pain, the pain, the pain one. and then like nausea, vomiting, gassy, bloaty. Um, and then, uh, and it can be worse if you eat a meal that's really high in like fat or something that can bile. trigger more of that release. And so like, yeah, if you eat a bunch of bile. Um, and then uh, the pain, I think this is interesting. It can actually, so it's it's in that right upper area of your stomach. It can also be sort of central in the upper stomach. and uh, But it can go up to like your right shoulder blade. <laughs> Whoa. So I think that's kind of interesting that mm -hmm. that's where it radiates to. Um, when we do an exam to, to like try to diagnose that this is a gallbladder issue, we look for something called Murphy's sign. What's Murphy's sign? Murphy's sign is we push kind of hard. This is what we would call deep palpation. I mean, we're going to push firmly <laughs> on your right upper quadrant, uh, right under your rib cage, and um, you're going to uh, inhale and then you're going to say, ow. Ow. And if you Crap. say, ow. Crumbs. If you say, ow, that's a positive. Zooms, that hurts. Some people don't say, ow, so you have to ask, like, did it hurt? And you were just being tough. And, and, if, and, so, and you'll usually see that deep inspiration. <gasps> that's the other part Is that what it's called? Deep inspiration? <gasps> <gasps> I got it. No, no, like, no, I mean, like. I figured it out. As I'm inspired in, like, to know that my gallbladder's <laughs> messed up. Not inspiration, <gasps> like breathing in. <gasps> yeah, like we were inspired. Like, no, I, yeah, like, like Eureka. Not inspiration like that. <gasps> inspiration like like the opposite of expiration. Yeah, I mean, like breathing in. <gasps> but honey, it's like a gas. This is human. If somebody here. gasps in pain when you push there, then they yeah. their gallbladder's okay. messed up. That's you, what I'm trying to say. It's just you and me here. You know, no one says that outside of your. Well, these are I know. People. Well, I'm, I like, I try to use the medical term and then explain it. That's why I'm trying to. I understand. You can't have inspiration. Us creative types have already claimed it. Look at oh, the world of like the world of any. imagination. Like think of figment. That's inspiration. But we came you up. You can't have it for breathing in. Just say breathing in. But we came up with uh, all these mnemonics. That's pretty creative. That oh, takes yeah. a lot of inspiration. Yeah, I love how you refer to people as fat, fancy, and free, and they have <laughs> gallbladders. Th thank you. As a fat person, we're loving it over here. I'm going to criticize this. I'm just trying to get there. I, <laughs> You're I, taking a long time to I had criticize to it. I would have gotten the criticism in early. Okay. I When I asked you. It's 23 minutes in. When I asked you if you knew what the gallbladder was and you said no. So you had to take a brief a brief educational detour. Well, I, I felt like that it was key to understanding the entire episode that you, you knew about the gallbladder and gallstones and how it all hooked up together. And and I, if you didn't know, then maybe a lot of other listeners didn't know either. And yeah, so that's my that is my well, my function here. Because I mean, it's also kind of complicated because it's like I said, it's a whole system of pipes. So when you just block the pipe to the gallbladder with a stone, you get mm -hmm. some symptoms. If that stone manages to get through that pipe into the big pipe, the common bile duct, and but if it blocks off that, mm -hmm. then you get jaundice. Mm -hmm. You get a backup of bile and you turn yellow, and then you get and then it, you can get much sicker. Mm -hmm. So like. These can be big deals. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Got okay. It. What do we do about it, and how did we figure that out? I'm going to tell you, but first I'm going to take you to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the 
Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. The Eurovision Song Contest. Hundreds of millions of people watch it every year. It played a part in the democratic revolution in Portugal. It introduced the world to Riverdance, and it launched Celine Dion's career. But you might have never watched it. It's got so much history and so many storylines that it can feel overwhelming to get into. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like a real housewife season, but everyone's a better singer. Well, sometimes. But that's where we come in. I'm Dimitri Pompey. I'm Oscar Montoya. And I'm Jeremy Bent, and we're the hosts of Eurovangelists. If you're new to Eurovision, we'll tell you everything you need to know to start enjoying the world's most important important song competition. And if you're already a fan, we'll dive deep on its wildest moments, like when Ireland sends a turkey puppet to sing for them. You're Evangelist. New episodes every Thursday. On MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Cruciola, host of Feeling Seen, where we start by asking our guests just one question. 
What movie character made you feel seen? I knew exactly what it was. Clementine from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Joy Wang slash Jobu Tupaki. That one question launches amazing conversations about their lives, the movies they love, and about the past, present, and future of entertainment. Roy in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I worry about what this might say about me, but I've brought Tracy Flick in the film Election. So if you like movies, diverse perspectives, and great conversations, check us out. Oof, this is real. New episodes of Feeling Seen drop every week on MaximumFun.org. Okay, I got the gallstones. Um, I'm fun, funky, freaky. You know I got gallstones. I'm flighty. I'm flirtatious. I'm free. Yes, okay. Um, I'm going to tell you what to do about them then. Fur line. Do you know, by the way, the first gallstones we found were in like a mummy from Egypt from like 1500 BCE. So we've known, like we've had gallstones for a really long time. I would just assume it's regular stones at that point. It's so old. <laughs> They're gallstones. Um, the first time we started writing about them in the medical literature, there was a uh, woman who passed away who had had abdominal pain and a pathologist, a Florentine pathologist, Antonio uh, Benevieni in 1420 wrote an account of finding these stones and saying, like, hey, maybe this had something to do with this. <laughs> this person has rocks in this weird thing I found under the liver. <laughs> this seems bad. Um, and so you see, like, more descriptions of this and people starting to connect, like, what biliary colic is mm -hmm. um, throughout, especially, like, throughout the 1600s. They're not really doing anything about it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just like, oh, yeah, you got those rocks. I hope you don't die. <laughs> there was uh, a gallstone surgery that accidentally happened in 1687. Um, there was a surgeon, uh, Stalpert Vanderweel, who was uh, operating on a patient who had peritonitis, meaning like all this pus collecting within the abdominal cavity, basically. Okay. Had an infection in there. Um, and they were accidentally found to have uh, gallstones that were kind of removed in the process. Um, that was not the goal, but you figured out like, hey, we could maybe take these gallstones out. We still don't know exactly how to do it. But probably don't need them. No, we don't need the gallstones. We knew we didn't need the gallstones. The problem is that like, it wouldn't occur to you that you don't need an organ yet. Right, that's true. There's a big leap here big... that we have to take at some point, which is... Hey, guys, you're going to think I'm wild. I don't think we need this thing. I don't think we need this thing. I don't think we need this thing. I mean, think about that. Like, somebody had to make that call. I don't think we need this thing. Let's take it out and see what happens. It's really little. Honey, it's, that would surprise me if it happened, like, today. Like, 150, 50, 100 years ago. Like, everybody's getting buck wild. Like, everybody's doing wild stuff like that. So, uh, Jean-Louis, Jean-Louis Petit. Jean-Louis? Jean-Louis Petit. Uh, was the first one to do like a, a type of surgery aimed at alleviating this gallbladder issue okay. um, back in 1733. We were not yet removing the gallbladder. That that would, wouldn't come for a little bit. Um, but the idea was maybe we can just drain it and take out the stones. Okay. So the way that you would do that, um, and he, and by the way, he came up with this idea in like 1733. It took him like 10 years to get it right. <laughs> Uh, but basically you would try to adhere the gallbladder to the abdominal wall. And you could do this by like 
making a little stitch, like reaching down through the wall of the abdomen into the gallbladder and then like attaching it to the wall. These, what, these days we have Velcro, so it would be a lot easier, presumably. <laughs> you wanted something to stick the wall of the gallbladder up against the stomach wall, the abdominal wall, okay? And then that what starts to happen naturally when things rub against each other like that, you can get what you call adhesions. These are actually complications after a surgery because after a surgery, everything's inflamed and touching each other in ways it doesn't normally. Mm-hmm. You can develop these like abnormal little bands of tissue between two things. And sometimes they can even cause pain. In this case, you want those to form because if it's sort of like suctioned up against the wall, you can cut a hole in the wall and right into the gallbladder and you don't have to worry about stuff oozing out into the abdominal cavity. Does that make sense? You're creating a fistula. Do you remember the fistula? Sure, 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 sure. Okay, you're creating that. Creating your own little access port. And this was, and actually the way he figured this out is that he accidentally did this the first time. He thought somebody had an abscess, like a collection of pus in the wall of their abdomen. Mm -hmm. And so he cut into it, but he was cutting into a gallbladder. Ooh, okay, yikes. Anyway, so that was what they did at the time. They would uh, try to get the gallbladder to stick to the abdominal wall and then cut into the wall, drain out all the fluid, and pick out all the gallstones. Okay. And then that was the way that we treat it. This is a cholecystostomy, meaning we're making a hole in the gallbladder. When you're doing any sort of ostomy, you're making a hole somewhere. Okay. 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 so that's what he started doing. Uh, you sew the gallbladder to the wall. It's like a two-stage thing. Um, you wait until you're, you're sure some adhesions have formed, and then you pluck everything out of there. And you see descriptions of surgeries after that where patients or where doctors were starting to perform this cholecystostomy, and this was becoming sort of like the standard of care because people were living through this. I mean, and we're still like at this point— we are moving from like the late 1700s into the 1800s. And it would really be like 1867 when a doctor, John Bobbs in Indianapolis, would like do this and the patient would live and he could write it up and everything went well. I mean, it took a long time because I mean, we're still like pre-anesthesia, right? Right. So, and pre-sterile technique. <laughs> Pre a lot of stuff. Yeah. That <laughs> was pretty good. So- As we're developing this way of managing gallbladder disease, like very clearly, this is how we manage it. We cut a hole, we drain everything out of there, we're good. Easy. Um, There were other people who were interested in the idea of like, well, maybe maybe there's a better way. Um, And they were looking at research that had actually been done back in the 1600s by two Italian surgeons who removed gallbladders from animals Mm. in order to see could these animals live without their gallbladders. And so all the way back in the 1600s, we kind of knew that, like, it looks like in animal models, you can survive without a gallbladder. So instead of, like, this whole big thing where we create this big hole in your abdominal wall and it takes a while and we have to form adhesions and all this, could we maybe just get rid of the gallbladder? Mm. The first person to do that uh, was a, a, a different surgeon. Uh, Dr. Carl uh, Johann August Langenbuch, who was the first one to, after studying all of this and practicing on um, cadavers, removed a, a gallbladder from okay. a 43-year-old man who had gallbladder disease. Uh, and the patient, after six weeks in the hospital, was discharged. Hey. So he lived. Hey, not bad. Uh, he reported on it in 1882, so that's where we are in history. Um 
But a lot of people were still nervous about it. Like we, by this point, we had really established a pro, uh, like a protocol for a cholecystostomy. We knew how to do it. Um, you're going to take a whole organ out. So what they started doing is auditing. Okay, well, we've got a surgeon over here doing cholecystectomies, meaning we're ectomy, we're taking it out. Right we've got out. people doing cholecystostomies, meaning we punched a, a hole, in. hole in there. Let's compare who who's doing better. And right at this point, we're comparing mortality. Mm. So like nowadays, when we compare like which procedures Some better, certainly, certainly yeah. mortality is part of that. But like, we don't expect that a bunch of people are dying from yeah. the procedure. We expect like, how fast was their recovery? Did their symptoms return? How, you know, were there complications? Like we're looking at, it's more nuanced. Yeah. Back then it was like how many people lived and the cholecystectomy was the superior procedure. It was mm. the one that was... um that was definitely being shown to to be more effective and you were more likely to live through even back then. Um, so at that point, that became really the standard of care. And of course, as with any, any procedure in surgical history, if you have a patient or if, if you have a surgery that seems pretty good before we have sterile technique and uh, great anesthesia, once we have the invention of sterile technique and great anesthesia, the procedure becomes much, much better. So obviously the procedure was refined over time, yes. as all surgeries were, and became something that was pretty commonplace to do. The only real change that has happened since then was in 1987. Um, at this point in surgical history, we have the rise of laparoscopic surgery, okay. meaning we make tinier incisions and we use a camera to look inside mm -hmm. uh, the abdomen while we're doing the procedure with instruments called trocars. Instead of just making a big hole and putting our hands in there. Got it. Okay. So we're already using that a lot in gynecological surgeries, like hysterectomies and things like that. Um, and in this specific example, there's a French doctor who's doing a laparoscopic procedure on a gynecologic laparoscopic procedure on a patient. And while he's in there, he notices that... Uh, uh, she has gallstones. Mm. But he notices that the gallbladder looks inflamed, I should say. Okay. So as long as he's in there, he goes ahead and uses his laparoscopic equipment to take her gallbladder out. Honey, this is wild. This, sh it shouldn't be like this. No. There's something- This is 1987, by the way. Yeah. It, there's just no way, like, it's wild that, do you think this cat's like looking around like, I don't think anybody noticed. I'm just gonna, as long as I'm in here, let me just pop that out. <laughs> Is that how medical history goes? You just well, pop it out real she quick. She had while had. You're in there? I mean, I, and I and by all accounts, it was a like she was fine with it because she had had symptoms from them. Like she was having issues from her gallbladder, and he fixed it while he was in there. I mean, honestly, in my experience, a lot of people will say, "Hey, as long as I'm here, can you do A, B, C, or D? As long as I'm out, can you pierce my kid's ears? As long as they're out, getting their tonsils removed, that kind of thing." Well, I mean, healthcare is so it's such a bad system that's so difficult to navigate. It takes a long time. Sorry, I know that we have a capitalist medical system. It does take a long time to get care. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> it does. I know that the myth is that you can get it so fast because we're all, it's for profit. No, it takes a long time. And once you get in and you're going to pay a bunch, and once you meet your deductible, because that's how insurance works here, you'll want to get all that you can because it's so crazy expensive. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. And there was a huge demand, by the way. Patients were like, I want it that way. I want the laparoscopic one. I want it 
the incisions right. are so much smaller. The recovery is quicker. It's easy. I mean, there's so many things about it that are easier. Honey, you and sold so, me. I'll get it. Well, but it was like it started to happen even before it became the standard of care because it wouldn't become the standard until 1992. What does but that But you mean? already, meaning like we have standards that tell like, they're basically used to tell other people, are we doing the best, med- like the best medical knowledge has to offer for this right now? Um, and so in my practice, I follow standards of care. If you come in with, you know, diabetes and you need me to manage you, I am going to prescribe the medicines and do the things for you that medical standards say okay. are the best care I can provide at this moment. Okay. And those change as medical knowledge evolves, right? As new drugs or procedures You're come saying out. people were doing that before everybody agreed that it was the best before, thing to do. Before 1992 when everybody says, yes, we should do this. So if you have gallstones at this time, one, you statistically you probably don't know. And if you're not having symptoms, there's really no evidence that we should do anything about them. So mm-hmm. if you do just randomly get an ultrasound that sees them and you're fine, we should probably just leave them alone. Okay. That That is what, that is generally speaking the best care at the moment. If you're having symptoms from them, we, multiple episodes of this, then taking your gallbladder out, not cutting a hole in it, but taking it out is generally speaking the best thing we can do. And then there are people who kind of fall in between who for some reason may be a higher risk for surgery or they've only had an episode. They're not sure if they want surgery. And there is a medication, Ursodiol, that you can take that's supposed to help dissolve those stones for you. Mm -hmm. It's like 30 to 50% effective. So it may help some. And if for some reason surgery is a really big, you know, is not an easy thing for that patient, it may be a kind of a stopgap measure or another option. Okay. Um, The five Fs. Yes, that's what got us here. There was a study in the British Medical Journal in 1950 that said this mnemonic is not very helpful. This is how long we've known that this mnemonic is not very helpful. And you've still been learning it the Um, whole time. While younger people with gallbladder disease are more likely to be female, as we get older, men are more likely to have gallbladder disease. White people do not have the highest rate of gallbladder disease. So the whole fair that it's usually a white person, that is not, that's just not true. Okay. I mean, anybody can have gallbladder disease. Yes. Um, after the age of 50, whether or not you had kids has no nothing to do with it. During pregnancy, there's some things that can happen with your digestion and slowing of, the, of your bile release that could predispose you to developing gallstones. So there is a connection to pregnancy and gallbladder disease. But this idea that, like, people who— who never had kids are much less likely to develop gallbladder disease. That is not true. After the age of 50, it doesn't matter if you've had kids or not. You might get gallbladder disease. You might not. The idea that weight is tied to that, this is based on the assumption that because most stones are precipitated from cholesterol, that if you are overweight, you eat more cholesterol. Mm. That is where that comes from. That's very it is, outdated. Yes. It is based on an outdated and stigmatizing assumption about the eating patterns of someone who is overweight or obese. That is where that comes from. Huh. If any correlation is made, it is with weight going up and down rapidly. So this is actually true for somebody who has lost a lot of weight very rapidly. That can lead to complications that result in gallstones fluctuating. So yes, your your weight fluctuating rapidly could No, that's an F. Oh, there you go, fluctuating. There, hey. Yes, but it is not it, there is no causative relationship between being overweight or obese and developing gallstones. So it's not true. Uh, and a, and a stronger predictor is family history and that's nowhere in the mnemonic. And it's I mean, an it F. could be, it's an F, but we didn't say that. Fluctuating 
family history. So the mnemonic is not is not helpful. And I think the bigger thing is that it also, it locked me into, I know, this idea of picturing the, the type of patient who developed gallbladder disease based on some outright falsehood, some misconceptions, and then just some, like, misunderstanding stigma, yeah. and stigma, and definitely stigma. Um, and it, I think, g- generally speaking, we know that people who are overweight or obese are neglected often by the medical community. Their complaints are tied to weight, whether or not they have anything to do with that. They're often used as that, the weight is used as a scapegoat, so to speak, for whatever complaints they have. They do not get the same care as people who are not overweight or obese. We also know that uh, female uh, patients' complaints, especially of pain, are generally undertreated, undermanaged, underlistened to. Um, disregarded by the medical community. Not everybody, not always, but generally speaking, these are truths. And so now we have further stigmatized and limited the way we're going to think about this group of patients because we've been taught an unhelpful, untrue mnemonic that will make me assume something about you before I take the time to sit down and do my due diligence and make sure that if you do, if, if it is gallbladder, fine, but maybe it's something else and I'm going to ignore it because of uh, the five Fs. All right. Thank you, Sydney, for clearing that up for me. You're welcome. Thank you uh, to our listener, Annie, for for the email, because I had never taken the time to dig into it. And I'm really glad that I did and that we could uh, dispel those myths and talk about gallbladders. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song, Medicines, as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. We sure appreciate it. Uh, again, that is going to do it for us. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.